This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. And welcome to the Monday morning break. My name is Marie, and I'm the host this morning. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to welcoming Matthew Holman. So Matthew Holman is a mental health ambassador, um, and really looking forward to talking about neurodiversity and mental health. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. the Monday morning break. Um, as I said, my name is Marie and um, this is my first show. So welcome everyone. I'm really looking forward to this. I thought before I welcome my guest, Matt Holman, I will just give a brief overview of, of who I am. This is my first time as a host um, and I work for an incredible organisation called Inclusion Hampshire and I'm the head of, um, head of Inclusion College. So we're a specialist provision for um, 16 to 25s, whose main barrier to employment and and further education and independent adult life is their mental health needs. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do. I'm really looking forward to hosting hosting this Monday morning break and getting to know uh, the lovely listeners as well. So yeah, do please feel free to call in or text in. Um, and yeah, really looking forward to it. So without further ado, I would like to welcome. Um, I would like to welcome Matt Holman. So, Matt, is that is that you there? I hope it is. Oh, it is! Amazing! <laughs> okay, fantastic. Good morning. Good morning, Marie. It works. The technology works. It works. Gosh, I can't tell you how relieved I am. <laughs> um, right. So, if I just briefly introduce you, if that's okay. So, Matt, you are the um, you are the founding owner of Simply Sim, Simpler Mental Health, um, a global sorry, <laughs> a global mental health um, ambassador, uh, mental health trainer, well being consultant. You're a Samaritan. Um, you're a host of a mental health podcast um, and uh, TED Speak as well. Um, so yeah, you're so busy. <laughs> you're so busy. That's a lot. Um, so, and I've got here that you've spent over 25 years learning about mental health through your own personal journey and experience, working all hours, traveling around the world, um, and and so now you're you're here to share your story, share your journey, and inspire others to talk openly about their own challenges. Um, so yeah, could I you know could I ask you to just explain a bit more about that? Yeah, of course you can. Um, and firstly, uh, welcome to this new gig for you, right? So <laughs> host, hosting this event. So well done. Um, good luck oh, as well. Thank you. So it's, it's lovely. Thank I'm your, you. I'm your, I'm, your, I'm your first guest. I feel absolutely honoured. You... <laughs> 
you are my first guest. Um, yeah, and th thank you so much. Thank you so much oh, for coming coming on. No worries, no worries. And it's, it's a pleasure. And I know as soon as you reached out to me, it was like, yeah, absolutely. Chance to talk about mental health and neurodiversity, always all over that. So, um, yeah, thank you for the introduction as well. Uh, lots of things in there, like you say. Um, it looks busy on the outside, doesn't it? I think it's the, it's the way I manage my life now that is the most important thing. And so, albeit it might look like there's lots of things that I'm involved with, which I guess technically they are, um, I also really do take care of myself and that's one of the biggest parts of everything that I've learned over this journey for the last uh, 25 probably well I should say 48 years really because because I'm 48 years old and uh, and you know it's been an interesting ride um, along the way like many people will experience going through careers and changes to their jobs and stuff and I'm sure we'll touch on on a number of different parts in this conversation today but yeah I think my most important pieces that I can share are you know, on the uh, 15th of January 2016, I, I was on the receiving end of losing my job very suddenly, um, which then created its own uh, challenges. I traveled for a long time. I've been growing up within the career that I sort of started out on, traveling all over the world, doing what my friends would perceive to be amazing things. Um, I was very lucky, according to most of them. They didn't know what was going on inside, but then why would I share the realities of my struggles mm. and my, my anxiety? And it all changed sort of in a heartbeat. And I was just in my early 40s, lost my career, and I needed to change. And that's when I sort of created a, a, a very small business called Simpolo, which uh, was, was focusing on how can we help people? That's it. That's ultimately the core to what we do. Whatever we do has to help. So all of the elements that you, you described in my introduction actually all point in the same direction, helping to improve conversations, awareness, education and support for this topic called mental health. Now we're evolving that into neurodiversity and so on. So lots of different parts to it. But I think I just want to sort of share it up front. I'm also a parent and, and being a parent is not an easy job as anybody listening who is a parent would understand. And actually helping our children now to grow through the world that we live in today is a challenge for, for most parents. I, I think it would be, you know, I don't think I can say with any confidence that I have lots of friends who find it easy to be parents. And for us, my wife and I, we have two daughters. One is going to be 21 this year. One is still in mainstream education. She's going to be 16. She's doing her exams uh, in the next couple of months. But both of my children um, have their own challenges and battles with mental health. In particular, my eldest daughter, when she was 15 in 2018, she developed uh, an eating disorder, which caused a lot of uh, challenges for us. Um, of course, it's a mental illness. Um, and two years after she was diagnosed with an eating disorder, she was then diagnosed with autism. So hence my, my steps into uh, understanding more about neurodiversity. My youngest daughter is 15, as I said. She has her exams coming up in a, in a couple of months. And she's also been diagnosed with ADHD. And that's a diagnosis that we've only received in the last two, I'd say probably three months now. So yeah, so, so we have a vested interest in all of these conversations, mental health, neurodiversity. Uh, my eldest daughter as well, um, again, you know, I'm very transparent about these conversations. I hope everybody's okay with what I share. But my oh, eldest yeah. daughter also um, has been in hospital for the past two years uh, with mental illnesses. And, and I think there's a, there's a big correlation between her mental illness and her neurodiversity uh, with autism. So, so yeah, so lots of areas of my life. I'm, I'm very open. Um, I'm happy to talk about any of those areas. And Marie, I hope that sort of gives everybody a little bit of an insight into my world. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I mean, yeah, just a few things to touch on that you've in your introduction. Um, so one is, um, you know, I really admire that transparency. And I think that's something that's really, really important to me as well. Um, it's uh, the more we talk about things, um, 
the more we work to kind of remove the the stigma that still surrounds mental health um and and yeah and, and like you said right at the beginning on seemingly on the surface in the past you you had it all you know you had travel with work amazing job but you weren't really sharing with people um how you were actually feeling so um you know i think yeah sharing the more we can talk about things uh the more transparency i i really admire that and i really agree with it um the other thing i wanted to sort of touch on as well is you've you've talked about being a parent um and and being a parent of you know children daughters diagnosed with neuro neurodivergency and, and their own mental health difficulties um, and that that link between them which I think is a really you know it's a really important area um, and I know we've talked about it before um, but yeah you've talked about being a parent you you work um, you know very much admire your, your time management or time mastery that you that you have um, and that looking after yourself as well so you're, you're doing a lot and I actually appreciate very much what you're saying it looks like you're doing a lot but actually you're managing it very well um, and being very aware of your own health um, but yeah but parent working and then your own mental health um, you know that's you know that's that's just quite a lot isn't it um, so All of those, um, all of those things, and I look forward to talking talking now more about that. So, yeah, well, first thing then, would you would you like to just tell me a little bit, um, sort of history of neurodiversity? Uh, where where does it all begin? Um, well, uh, there's there's different layers, isn't there? It depends. It, recent history for me is it only started in the last few years, you know, in terms of understanding and awareness. But I think with the, the sort of the evolution of the world that we're in right now, information is becoming so much more accessible. Um, you know, when I train people and, and just sort of give an idea of, of sort of the work that I do, so we do a lot of training with, with businesses and organisations and groups and so on. But, you know, one thing that we always want to make sure is we set out the, the where are we now versus where we were and where are we going so that it's quite clear, you know, what I see with neurodiversity at the moment, it, just taking a snapshot of this piece right this moment for history sense, um, is there is a greater awareness of neurodiversity more than we've ever had and actually that's because of a number of different reasons firstly is uh, more people are aware of of what's going on what is adhd what is autism what is you know dyslexia and so on so so that does make actually a, a really positive um reflection on where we're at historically of course if we look back over the years it's been a long time coming that we're actually unveiling the truth workplaces and you know there's a reason why a very small percentage of people with neurodiversity today are in employment it's because workplaces just don't know how to help and support them and that's something that I'm really passionate about changing so we go back 20 30 years neurodiversity was seen as something that we didn't really want to get engaged with we didn't really want to know much about we didn't really understand and it's one of those subjects where if it's only if it's really debilitating we'd start to understand it for those people closest to us but in society, we, we neglect the people who probably have the best skills, actually. And, and as you know, Marie, from your work within the inclusion of Hampshire um, and the college, it's, it's very much about why have we missed this community of wonderful humans who have great ability. So, so going back to the 20, 30 years, the classrooms would just see people as being awkward or a nuisance or not engaging or social, um, you know, socially, uh, uh, not oh, sorry, socially deficient. And so 
we need to change the narrative around this. That's why things like neurodiversity has its celebration week versus an awareness week. It's quite interesting if I look at the parallel between mental health and neurodiversity, because with mental health, you have a lot of awareness weeks. So we do it. There's one coming up in May, mental health awareness week. Um, there's stress awareness month going on right now. There's all these awareness events that happen in the mental health world. In the neurodiversity world, what I love is actually we're looking at more, pro, um, more positive uh, terminology around that so we're looking at neurodiversity celebration week now i'm just going to throw it in there as a thought just to make sure everybody's clear i'm not saying everybody with neurodiversity doesn't find it challenging i'm not saying it's all perfect and it's amazing wouldn't it be lovely if we had a world where we were accepting of everybody for whatever it is and whoever they are and then we're able to work with them and support them it's something that i've now started to sort of tune my eyes more into because i see it through my daughters also, there is a hereditary part within some of those neurodiversities, which is a gift that's given by a parent. So, so now we're starting to understand that there's a direct correlation between or direct connection between neurodiversity in young people and their parents, albeit parents don't necessarily want to believe that they might have ADHD or autism. We're starting to see a lot more. Hence the reason if you look at the current window in the world, you look at the current media and the press, you're hearing about more people being diagnosed with ADHD. Adult ADHD is growing or not growing, but I think we're becoming more aware. And autism, the number of people who are having autistic diagnosis is, is definitely going up. So what's going on? Well, I think, and I use this as a thought, as an analogy. Hopefully this makes sense to the listeners. I think we've had a bit of an earth shake. I think there's been a bit of an earth shake and the masks are starting to come down. We're starting to encourage people to be honest, which is exactly what you said, actually, Marie, when you sort of talked about, you know, gave me feedback from my introduction. We're encouraging people to be honest with themselves. We're encouraging people to know a bit more about what might be going on. And we're not putting shame. I know some people might still feel the discrimination and stigma against that, but we're, we're not associating so much shame to these things as we did previously, because now we're starting to learn. And that's the core. So we're in a place right now where historic history is changing. We are moving the dials to encourage more people to talk, to engage with more people. And that's changing. And that's where we've come to right now. That's, yeah, so interesting. Thank you so much for talking, talking through that. Um, again, just a few things that I, I found really interesting um, that you've, you've said. And it's about that language change, isn't it? The, um, uh, where you've said, you know, it's not an awareness week now. It's um, celebration. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, that language is is really interesting. Um, and I think as well that that leap in, in awareness, I think, as well, and diagnosis and perhaps all the work, all the amazing work that's going on um, research-wise and, and medical professionals to, um, to understand neurodiversity. Um, I, I agree. It, you know, I don't think it's that it didn't exist before, but it's now that it's being diagnosed more. Um, and, and I think perhaps people are more open to, um, to getting assessed later in life. Um, I mean, I see so much sort of online and on, on Twitter, and it's obviously it's on TV, uh, of people having these late diagnoses um, and, and really looking back to their childhood and going, oh my gosh, okay, that really makes sense now. Yeah. Um, I thought it was just me, um, but that this explains it. Um, and I did see a thing, and I, I don't know, I don't know if, um, you know, how people feel about this, but I did read a thing that was a about suggesting that if your child is diagnosed, um, that perhaps, you know, parents should be 
should be screened or you know assessed or or at yeah. least sort of made aware um because like you said it is it, it can be hereditary um I, I liked your phrase by the way did you say is it a, a gift that has come from the yeah. parents yeah. um yeah but yeah all it about is. um it is yeah all about think, celebrating there's one thing I just want to put in there as well. And if we look back sort of in the history, you know, one of the reasons why people weren't being diagnosed or why there was a, a real sort of negative view of this was parents felt like they were failing. And I can yeah. absolutely say when we had the diagnosis of my daughter's autism, my wife and, you know, we, we both had that reflective point of we failed her and we mm. failed we didn't want to admit it and i think that's the problem sometimes isn't it we're, we're we're so focused on our children being perfect we're so focused on and of course it's not just about children but we're so focused on that thought of i don't want my child to suffer i don't want them to struggle but i don't also want to admit that they maybe are struggling or suffering so we'll pretend like it's all okay so a lot of parents were still and probably still are worried about the thought of oh my god if we know that this and and this isn't an illness by the way so i want to be really clear with that neurodiversity Mm. is not an illness it is not an illness it just has Mm. some developmental elements where there might be some challenges albeit a lot of people in the world today if you look at the most successful people in our world and our communities have neurodiversity so again it celebrates the thought that actually difference is good we need Mm. to have diversity if we don't have diversity you know people band around this word normal <laughs> we have normality yeah. come come on you know let's let's be adults about this normality doesn't yeah. exist in anybody's world look at every parent mm-hmm. every family every community that you live within there is not a single one that looks identical so what's normal you know and, and that's where we're heading now absolutely totally agree and it's something <laughs> it's something that we say a lot here as well you know normal what is normal um and and like you said i think you know the the word neurodiversity it is it's diversity rather than um an illness but also you know as you've touched on it it, not saying that it's all amazing and wonderful and and with it can come um difficulties and 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 struggles and and so well but hopefully we are moving towards a place where they're um you know, that we, we are more aware and we and we can support people so that we don't have those cases of people with this late diagnosis yeah. who are looking back at all the things they struggled with in, in education, in life, in relationships, um, and, and thinking, oh, okay, well, now I know why I was struggling. Um, yeah, so if we can just, just move on a little bit, if you've got yeah. some, some things you could... So talk to me about how, how can people be more aware well, I, I think listening to people talking, you know, one of the things I love about my job now is I get to talk and communicate with, you know, thousands of people every year. And that's through all the different means and, and modes that I have. I think we just need to open our eyes a little bit more. We need to encourage ourselves to learn a bit more about what's going on. There are reasons why people do things the way they do. We are quirky, individual, you know, and creative and, and all those different things. We need to try to establish a could that mean something else? How do we feel about that? So firstly, you know, the awareness piece, get to know yourself, get to understand a little bit about how you work, how you do the things that you do. And maybe then you can start to establish some of that why. Other people on the outside, it's good to talk to them too. get experience, get feedback, get conversations flowing during neurodiversity celebration week as you'll know marie because you were one of my guests on my podcast we did a ho- we, i hosted a series of 14 podcasts talking to people about their own personal journeys with neurodiversity and that was to try to help everybody listening and supporting people to to really engage with okay so that's how it works or that's what happens or that's how it feels i'm not trying to say everybody's got neurodiversity albeit there's a question mark over where the line is drawn 
But what I'm trying to share in the in the way that I raise awareness or the way that we need to raise awareness is more about facts. How does it feel to somebody with dyslexia? How does it feel to somebody who lives with autism when you're changing routines or you're making adjustments that don't help them? And I think as we evolve this part of the world that we're in now, we also have to always have side of mind mental health because mm. a lot of crossovers, and this is, if I can share anything in awareness here, it's this, a lot of the crossovers into mental illness actually we're now starting to see are not necessarily mental illnesses. They are undiagnosed neurodiversity. And as an example, let me share an example for, for anybody that's listening to understand you may know somebody that has had a long-term diagnosis of an illness called bipolar. Now, mm -hmm. I know this factually. I've got a friend that was diagnosed with bipolar many years ago. She has now been re-diagnosed with ADHD. So she never had wow. bipolar. It was a misdiagnosis. And I'm not saying everybody needs to go back and double check with doctors and everything else. But if there is an area of concern or worry about why am I struggling? Why is this changing? What can I do to improve? Sometimes we should go back to the neurodiversity or the, you know, at least acknowledging or establishing that. And, and so, so she was re-diagnosed 25 years after her original diagnosis of bipolar. She's wow. now been diagnosed with ADHD. She's on a totally different medication set. She's getting the right support now. That is quite a scary reality. Now, mm. if I'm talking to and, you know, talking with groups of parents in particular or teachers who, you know, anybody that has that, that access to young people, if you're seeing something that you think, you know what, that seems like it might be something towards neurodiversity, whether that's dyslexia or ADHD or autism, it's important that we've ruled things out rather than just look at it and go, oh, they'll be fine. They'll be OK. Don't worry about it. So that thing about diagnosis, which you mentioned as well a little bit while ago. It's so critical, albeit it's not easy to get access to diagnosis straight away, but it is important to check. And that's what this is about now. So awareness being recognizing differences, understanding what might be going on. Stop just considering it as a, well, they're depressed. They've got a problem with depression because, again, the crossover between depression and ADHD is very close. The crossover between eating disorders and autism is very close. There is research now that's showing the connection between the two. And so it's about establishing baseline understanding. And then if you're worried, it's about reaching in, you know, reaching in to get some help or support. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's so interesting. And I'm really, really glad as well, just to hear that, the, you know, your friend with the re-diagnosis that hopefully, you know, that treatment now yeah. uh, is helping. I mean, what a, like you said, what a scary, scary thought that for 25 years she was yeah. being treated for something that she, she actually didn't have. And I'm very interested, actually, it's something that I'm very interested about this, this um, link potentially between link or, or as you said misdiagnosis between neurodiversity and and other con you know conditions and, and so on yeah. like uh, mental illness mental illnesses and mental health needs um I mean um, I think I'm right I, you know you will know more about this than me but I think I'm right in saying you know if you've got a, a diagnosis of, of an eating disorder and autism then actually the treatment uh, is very, very different. The course of, you know, support yeah. and therapy and treatment is different for someone with autism um, yes. than somebody with an eating disorder, but, you know, they're, they're not, you know, neurodivergent. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've lived through an experience with our own daughter with, with you know, and that's one of the reasons why I'm now really sort of 
passionate about saying to people, look, be very careful. And and, and I've consulted with a number of families, you know, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a therapist. So I just want to put that out there. Please don't think I'm giving therapy to people. I, I talk to a lot of families over the years about their children, especially teenage girls, and noticing changes, their eating behaviours. And, and as we're talking, I sort of always put the question in there to say, have they ever been diagnosed or assessed, maybe not even diagnosed, but at least assessed for um, underlying autism? And I can tell you now, every time I've said that to a parent, the first reaction is, why would they do that? Why would, mm. why would I be thinking that? And I said, exactly, because that's what we didn't realize at the time when our daughter was struggling with an eating disorder. We didn't even have it on the radar to think, oh, maybe there's something else going on. We just thought she had a lot of anxiety in her life. She had a lot of trauma at some point. We didn't even know what that trauma would be because not, it was nothing that was in line of sight for us. And we never established a thought that said, well, maybe she just sees the world slightly differently. Maybe the controlling element of her eating disorder, which, you know, breaking it down, what is an eating disorder? An eating disorder is, is around control. So changing routines take away the control of the routines. So we didn't even establish that connection ourselves. And now that's one of the reasons why I want to share that with people to say, just rule things out. I'm not saying every yeah. child has autism. I really am not saying that. But what I am saying is, if you are tearing your hair out as a parent going, what the hell is going on with my child here? I'm really struggling. Maybe just look at the neurodiversity element, because there might be something inside there that says, one of the reasons, and let me give you the example. So my daughter was at school. She was doing very well at school. She was, you know, a bit of a model student. She never had a detention, was never late. She was, you know, she was head girl at school. Um, but in the very early parts of 2018, she was preparing for her exams. She's preparing for these final exams, which means she's going to leave that school. She's then being asked, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? How do you want to grow up and live your life? What do you want to be when you're older? She struggled. And all of a sudden, mm. her world was being conflicted and she was being thrown into chaos. The routines were changing. She was going from a very structured approach to her school, you know, a timetable. She was now going into a world where she was being asked to recall information in an exam. She was the first year in 2018 when they removed all of the coursework elements uh, for most of yeah. the exams. So she was being impacted by this constant bombardment of you need to do well in your exam. This wasn't from us as parents, but from the school mm. and the systems. You need to do well in your exams. You need to get good grades. You need to perform harder. You need to recall all this five years of information you've grown. And she struggled. And, and actually looking back with this now awareness two years later in 2020 that she had um, autism, we now understand what was going on. Wouldn't it have been good if we could have known that before it started happening and we could mm. have avoided my daughter has been in hospital for three years out of the last three and a half years and we could have avoid, avoided all of that. And the hospitals that she's been in, and this is, you know, just being again, very open and, and honest, the hospital settings that she's been in have been for her mental health and there's been yeah. very limited consideration to her neurodiversity. So loud wards, mm -hmm. lots of noise, lots of overstimulation and all the other asset or all the other sensory challenges that she experiences now so she's regressed and, and it's been very difficult to see mm. yeah just firstly just so sorry to hear that and and to think about um your daughter and that, that must be incredibly difficult um especially when you're looking back with with hindsight and more knowledge but equally you know as you said the the hospitals um the provisions are aren't taking into account her neurodiversity and and no. that's that must be really really difficult to see um it's, so, not, it's not an illness yeah. it's not no. an illness. so so a no. hospital is, is is primarily for physical health and if the yeah. if, if it's not an illness they're not treating it 
you know, and that's the challenge. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it's very interesting what you were saying. Um, you know, it's almost take this approach of rule it out. Yes. Um, it's not looking for that first kind of, oh, that, that fits, that diagnosis criteria mm. fits. It's that. It's looking wider um, and ruling it out at, at the outset, maybe, potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as you said, you know, you're a parent your parent and it's and it's frightening um for your child to be going through something um and not knowing so i think that that was a really good for me that sounded like a very good first point of call uh, piece of advice of of look wide and rule things out rather than yeah. looking maybe for for the first thing that that fits um yeah, that's that's very good. Thank you. Um, we're just going to move into the news now. Um, so we will return after the news to talk about some. Um, I think it'd be good. Could we talk about some myth busting, Matt? After the news, if, if um, you wish. And then, yeah, I'd love to. And then yep. perhaps we'll move on after that to just some of the workplace factors because I think that's really really interesting. I'd very much like to touch on as well this sort of workplace factors for for staff. Um, yep who may be neurodivergent. So thank you and a great first half and I'm just going to move into the news now. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. In union news, Daniel Kabede has been elected leader of the National Education Union. The union is the largest teachers' union and has been at the forefront of industrial action over teachers' pay in recent months. Mr Kabede said in a statement, after taking 69% of the vote to win the election, I am honoured to have been elected as General Secretary. I would like to thank everyone who has supported and campaigned for me. He went on to talk about the need for fundamental change in education and that this included an end to real terms pay cuts, an end to massive overwork of staff, the end of punitive Ofsteds and an increase in school funding. He also thanked current Joint General Secretaries Kevin Courtney and Dr Mary Bowstead for their inspiring leadership over the last six years. They will step down at the end of August. The BBC reports that, according to a leaked government document, Almost a quarter of teachers in England are working 12-hour days, with around 60% of teachers saying they were doing 60 hours a week or more. The research by the Department for Education was carried out during spring 2022, but the findings have not been officially made public. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has said that a new task force will be created to help reduce teachers' workload by an average of five hours per week. The leak comes as teaching unions consult members in England on a new pay offer, which includes the promise to reduce workload. The leaked document, marked confidential and given the title Working Lives of Teachers and Leaders, was produced by the DFE to examine issues around teacher supply, recruitment and retention. More than 11,000 teachers and leaders across primary and secondary were questioned. The report found... One in four teachers were considering leaving the state sector within the next 12 months. 
workload was the key factor in this decision. Three quarters said they spent too much time on paperwork. Two thirds of leaders said they spent too much time responding to government policy changes. One in five said they had low satisfaction in their working life, whilst almost a half rated their anxiety levels as high. Almost three quarters of teachers described their workload as unacceptable. Dr Mary Bowstead of the NEU accused ministers of withholding important information from the peer review body, although the government denied this. A spokesperson for the government insisted that the recent pay offer of 4.3% plus a £1,000 one-off payment was fair and reasonable. The Department for Education has released an update on the .gov.uk website focusing on the review of the way relationship, sex and health education is delivered. The update comes after a number of stories across media outlets prompted concern and outrage from some quarters and claims that hysteria is being whipped up by right-wing agitators from others. RSHE education has been compulsory for pupils in primary schools since September 2020. In secondary schools, relationships and sex education must be taught. The review, which will be completed by an expert panel, will focus on how to ensure pupils have access to age-appropriate information and how to place protection from pupils being introduced to things that they are too young to understand properly. The panel will also consider how age ratings can be introduced for different parts of the curriculum. The review will be completed before the end of 2023. As we approach Easter, the debate about supporting families who receive support through free school meals should be supported in holiday times and it's opened up again. The big issue raises concerns that despite the cost of living crisis, many families will go without support until term begins again. In what it calls a postcode lottery for support, many families will miss out as current funding largely depends on where you live. In England, the government is not directly funding free school meals over the Easter break, but support may be available if local councils decide to provide meals or vouchers. Many councils are relying on the holiday activities and food programme to support low-income families. In Scotland, some councils are offering free school meals payments to low-income families, but universal free school meals for children in primary one to five will not be available. There is some support available, but it varies by council, as does the amount of support being offered. The Welsh Government has made free meals available throughout the holiday period. The Government in Wales announced that £9 million has been provided to support eligible pupils with a free meal up to the end of May half term, including all bank holidays. The support will take the form of meal vouchers, money or packed lunches. In Northern Ireland, no free school meal provision is available. The previous holiday hunger payments of £27 per fortnight ceased on April the 1st. A Department for Education spokesperson said it was because additional ring-fenced funding had ended. But campaigners focusing on food poverty said the decision was abhorrent. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Okay, so um, that was our, our news today. And Matt, welcome back. I'm hoping you're still connected. I hope so too. 
Oh, fabulous. Excellent. Okay. Cool. Right. So as we said before the news break, we will just um, maybe go through a few myths, um, a bit of myth busting. So yeah, and if anybody out there is listening um, who would like to kind of call in or text in um, with their thoughts on this or any myths that we that they'd be happy for us to share, please do. But otherwise, yeah, Matt, should we kick off with some myths? Yeah, let's do that, shall we? Yeah. So I've got one. I've got one to start with. I think there is a myth. um, Oh, the phrase that I particularly dislike is we're all a little bit OCD. Um, I like things. Yes, (laughs) I like things clean. And and it's about, um, you know, stacking my cupboards. as we, as most of us, you know, who are involved in mental health will know, that um, really isn't a representation of OCD. No. And, and no, not everyone is a little bit OCD, even if you like your house clean. Um, yeah, I think the biggest part, perhaps, that people don't understand about OCD is the, um, the intrusive thoughts um, mm. and and the fear um, of of not being in control of things happening. Um, to to people or to people or to accidentally um doing something yourself due to intrusive thoughts um so yeah um that's my first myth that i'd like to to bust <laughs> i like i like it's a good one and and you know the little i just want to pick up on that because obviously i do a lot of work with the mental health side as well as neurodiversity now but the ocd piece you know it's a serious mental health condition you know so mm-hmm. so when people say i'm a little bit ocd Ah, oh, it really grinds me because this mm. is, you know, people suffer, seriously suffer yes. with, with OCD. So we're all creatures of habits. We have our routines. We have things that we do in a certain order. And there's sometimes it's just to simplify things for our minds. You know, we're in a, we're in a really busy world that there's a million things mm. going on. And, and sometimes actually simplifying things is easy. I get up in the morning and I put on pretty much the same clothes every day. Not the same. I put on clean clothes. Let me be clear. Um, <laughs> I put on a, polo sh- a black polo shirt every day because it just simplifies my choices. It just makes it easier. Yeah. So, so somebody could look at that and go, oh, yeah, but you only wear that color or you only wear that thing. So you must have something. And I'm going, I j- it's, it's called simplifying. That's what it is. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, maybe that is part of a neurodiversity a suite of things that might be happening. And, yeah, I don't know if that, that helps with the OCD comment, but, you know, we just have to be careful. Lang- language is such an important part of all of, all of the future of what we do. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, just to add to what you said, yeah. I mean, whether it's whether it's an OCD myth or, or other stereotypes about other mental health difficulties and illnesses is uh, when people use use those kind of jokes almost I guess or or language it does diminish what some people really go through um absolutely and it it, it undermines it yes Uh, yes absolutely and it's it's not appreciating perhaps um so yeah okay so have you got any um when when you're yeah have you got any others that we can talk about I've got a nice I've got a nice one yeah and I think it's it's a a useful one neurodivergent individuals are alike uh, it's yes. it's a myth they're not so so somebody with an autistic diagnosis doesn't necessarily look and act the same as somebody else with it and there was a wonderful documentary recently I don't know if anybody would have would have watched it but please do go and check it out you can watch it on the I think it's on the BBC iPlayer um, other players are available of course uh, and it was with Chris Packham 
and he did mm. a documentary about inside uh, our autistic minds and it's it was a wonderful understanding and it goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier about learning through the eyes of others or at least through their stories and he made a comment in there and I and it, it stuck with me and it's so true and the comment that he made and I think it was a quote from somebody but it's so powerful when you've met one autistic person you've met one autistic person so it really helps yeah. to establish that reality of not everybody with autism looks the same not everybody with autism is and I, all neurodiversity by the way I don't just mean autism so, Do you know, I was li- I, I was absolutely literally just jotting down a note to respond to you with that quote and say, oh. if you've met one. Yeah, it's because it's very powerful, isn't yeah. it? I, I, I think so. You have met one person with, with autism. Hmm. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Fantastic. And everybody's, everybody's conditions are unique. And, you know, the, the challenges that people experience are all unique. It's why, you know, we talk about this thing called the spectrum, don't we? The, the mm. neurodiverse spectrum or the autistic spectrum. And, you know, ASD is what it's known as autistic spectrum disorder. And, you know, there's high functioning autism. Many people today live with high functioning autism without even knowing they have high functioning autism. I'm not saying everybody needs to rush out and get a diagnosis because if it doesn't influence or impact the ability for you to perform in your daily routines in life, it, what do we need it for, I guess? Mm. But, but it's so, so valuable when we start to understand it's an underlying developmental piece that might be challenged or it might give you an alternative way to see the world. So we might bring that one in as a myth as well, because I think that would be quite useful. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop at that point, Marie, and see if you mm. want to put any others in. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just trying to find you sent me um, something when we were talking the other day, didn't you? And it was um I thought it was very beautiful. What was it? The the Maori word for autism. Oh is, yes. yes, was it ta- Takiwatanga, which means Takiwatanga, yeah. Yeah, in his or her own time and space. Love um that. yeah, lo- love that. I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um I mean really, yeah, really, really valid point about autism, yeah. I think there and that that myth. Um I think I don't know if you've got anything to sort of comment on or add to this but I think what's what I think has helped and has been really interesting is this more knowledge about how things like ADHD and and autism present in girls rather than boys Mm. um so I think there is a very stereotype view of of probably a you know a boy with ADHD um and yeah I think have you if you've got anything you could sort of talk talk to us about that yeah, I think I think girls actually, as you start, you start to see more of the, the developmental issues start to show themselves around sort of adolescence, teenage years. Um, there's a thing about masking um, that's a mm. really important one for people to be aware of. A lot of young girls, um, who, you, you know, eventually if we evolve to a point where we might see that they're starting to show some signs of from autism or, um, you know, all the other elements, etc. Uh, will will mirror and mask their mums. Um, so there mm. is that sort of element that we need to recognise that they sort of behavioural based around the perform, you know, the activities their mum shows. So they'll they'll be quite mothering, or they'll be, you know, whatever it might be um, that the mum's showing the young child um, in the developmental years. So so it's quite interesting. So it's often that we don't see it until a bit later. Um, albeit I'm thinking about my own daughter's experiences we Mm. saw it in a little bit of her behaviors and development when she was younger 
but it wasn't absolutely evident and clear. I think the, yeah, it, it's not easy. Boys tend to, um, you know, not trying to stereotype boys and girls, the differences between mm. the two and the way that they work. Girls tend to to mirror more towards their mum. Boys tend to have a little bit more of a, um, a, a freedom of spirit, I guess, in many ways. Um, and I will actually, if it's okay, Marie, throw in a, an interesting piece of data that we're starting to see. There's some research that's just recently came out um, around the connection of depression. Okay, so I know this isn't a neurodiversity issue, but this is a mental health condition, depression. Mm and uh, the use of social media okay uh, so yes <laughs> so, so yes. Throwing, i'm throwing in a really controversial topic now of course because i'm sure everybody oh, has their it... own opinions of social media but what it shows yeah. is quite an interesting dynamic shift so they're now able to prove through you know research and studies and you know statistics that as young people so we're talking more around sort of teenage girls um you know versus teenage boys if you look at the curve of depression within that community, if you look at the use of social media in hours per day, when you get to about five hours per day of use of social media, which for a lot of young people, and I'm sure we're all aware, is not uncommon, and it's probably relatively low for some, the the percentage of girls is about 40% of that community of girls struggling with depression now. Versus mm -hmm. if you look at boys, it doesn't have a major uptick as it gets longer. And actually, boys don't spend as much time on social media, you know, through, through the statistics that are shown um, in terms of developing depression. So their levels is about half of what it is of girls. And it's quite interesting. There is a yeah. con convergence point, which is where I found it really fascinating, which I think it was, I'm going to quote the year, and if I get it wrong, I apologise. I know that the reason for this is it was in 2010, I think it was 2010, the iPhone introduced the camera, the reversible camera, and Instagram was born. So ah. whichever year that was, it was the same year. So if it wasn't 2010, apologies, but that's my memory doesn't always recall the right information. But that point, <laughs> we started to see a change in depression in young females. So so connecting that to neurodiversity now. So sorry, I'm trying to sort of square this uh, this thing. Mm. Neurodiversity, the increase in people struggling with ADHD, attention deficit disorder has grown but also so as the use of social, so as the increase in depression. We know depression actually has a number of symptoms that look like ADHD. So mm -hmm. it's trying to sort of bring that into, into frame a little bit. I know that's not necessarily a myth for people, but I thought no, it was useful. No, no, very interesting. As you said, depression and, and social media is a, is a very, very big subject. Um, but just to add something that I, uh, some some reading and research that I did again it probably was a couple of years ago but the uh, there was there was some work on um doom scrolling um oh, yeah. so yeah. yes which is is very interesting and, and 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 to put very simply you know if you are um of low mood let's say not necessarily depression but low mood or, or anxiety um and you are scrolling and scrolling then what you will be drawn to is these things that are reinforcing your current worldview um yes. which then only compounds it um yeah. but i think i think an interesting point as well if we think about social media is the is the algorithms so yes. your feed then becomes just a yeah. very bleak place and I know there was some some efforts to kind of almost probably educate people on on curating their feed um and trying yeah. to kind of change that algorithm and, and I know people do it on Twitter I, I'd like to see these quite a lot of people are saying you know this is full of sort of doom and gloom at the moment so everybody post a picture of your 
dog. <laughs> um, yeah. And I've seen one, you know, people who love the outdoors post a photo that you've taken of the outdoors. So people are more aware of it now, I think. But yeah, doom scrolling, I think it was, it was an interesting term. Um, and I think it coincided as well with it was lockdown and, and, and things like that. When, I mean, I know for me, it was a real balance between trying to stay up to date um, and aware of what was going on in the world with having to be very strict with myself about that is enough, you know, a, yes. an hour. Or, wait, I mean, that sounds like a long time. But, um, you know, an hour of scrolling is come off it now because yeah. it's it it's can bring you it's hard yeah it can it's bring ridiculous. you down I mean like like you said like we've both said it's a it's a very very big topic perhaps it's one yeah. for another another show in the future um because it's not you know I personally I don't think all all social media is is negative um no, no. but yeah we've, we've kind of gone do you know this is this is I feel like this was going to happen Matt, because it's very interesting to talk to you and I'm really enjoying it but I'm very aware of the time as well so yeah. I'd like to just um could we move on a little bit then to the workplace factors yes yep yeah okay so yeah i mean uh thinking about if this is an interesting one for me staff well-being uh staff yep. welfare is is something i take extremely seriously as i've sort of said at the beginning of brief introduction i'm the head of inclusion college and and we're a specialist post 16 college for young people with with mental health needs um and i think in that everybody out there listening will understand that we have to look after ourselves as staff um, and it's very important for me in my role to look after my staff um, and prioritise their well-being. Um, and we've all had a very interesting conversation recently on about how many people in our staff team may be neurodivergent, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and I think workplace accommodations are really important, but I don't know how widespread that is. Um, is you know, have you got anything you could sort of add on on workplace factors, perhaps, for people? Well, yeah, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because um, I'm going to, you know, surprise everybody by saying there is a lot, of, uh, there is a lot of neurodiversity in workplaces already. Mm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. and I, I mean, I'm going to surprise you. I'm not going to surprise you, right? But the reality <laughs> is, most environments for workplaces are created for neurotypical people. And yeah. that's the biggest challenge we're facing right now is how do we help a neurotypical environment evolve to support and engage and encourage neurodiversity? And that's a big, big reality. And a lot of businesses now are starting to really embrace this thought of actually there's a wonderful community of people. And, you know, Marie, talking about the work that you do within inclusion and the people that you're working with and the young people. And I know, obviously, the, the, the people in the community of teaching and, uh, and everything else, the faculty. You know, the reality is, societally, people haven't always seen positives with neurodiversity. Mm. We need change that. So, so that we shouldn't feel ashamed as individuals to be able to say, I'm different, I'm unique, I'm creative, I'm logical, I'm this, or whatever it is that my superpowers are. We should all be able to be open and, and honest with that. So workplaces now are starting to see a value in unlocking talent. How do we unlock talent when we've never done it before? Well, we need to learn about what the talent resources and the capabilities look like. I, I think it's, you know, I, I, am, I have every confidence that the workplaces will change. Thinking of environments where there's groups or big groups of people versus neurodiversity sensory needs and issues mm. is, is a bit of a challenge for people. 
you know yeah. we've, we've seen if you look at it from a corporate world if you look at it from a business space there's been this evolution of hybrid working working from home working from an office work from wherever you like work from your kitchen your cafe whatever and of course as teaching resources they're not necessarily going to be in that in that sort of environment but if you look at that as a practice it's a chaotic practice because yeah. for neurotypical people, they go, brilliant, I can have a day off and I can sit in a cafe or not a day off. But I can have a day out of the office. I can sit in a cafe or I can go to the, the gym or whatever it is. For, for neurodiverse people, that can be really painful. So, mm. so we have to be inclusive. The inclusivity of this is about saying we're factoring in every single person, not just a population of people. And herein lies the big challenge for everybody. Inclusivity means everybody, not just some. That's exclusivity. Yeah. Exclusivity is we tell a few people what's going on. We don't tell everybody what's going on. Inclusivity means we support everybody. I'm actually doing a bit of work at the moment with a conference that I'm attending just next week. And we are focusing that conference on inclusivity and the 10%. The 10% being those people who have neurodiversity needs. And if we focus on the 10%, the 90% won't complain. They'll just engage. They'll, they'll just yeah. accept it and they'll get on with it. So moving away from that thought of a small population of people are the ones with neurodiversity to now saying, look, we don't know how many people really have neurodiverse needs, but let's create a world where neurodiversity is actually embedded into standard practice. And that's, I think, the big challenge that we're all looking at right now. Yeah, but, I, but such a worthwhile challenge, yep. isn't it? I mean, like you said, it's this, uh, the awareness of, of that you probably are all working with people who are neurodiverse I mean you may or may not know it um yep. you may or may not know that people are struggling I mean when you I think when you think from um a neurotypical versus a neurodiverse way um you know if you think of anything like you said that kind of the busy the busy kitchenette area um yep. for example the staff training or staff or team building days or lots and lots of people or areas of the workplace that are very very noisy or yep. you know that that overwhelming um and that perhaps you know it's it's a difficult thing to to think from a different point of view and to realize perhaps some of these things that might be causing people I mean I think particularly I was just thinking of, of sort of maybe somebody a member of staff in a, in a mainstream school um, the things that might be very difficult in the same way that they are for pupils yeah. you know yeah. busy corridors and lesson changeovers and sudden staff illness and cover sessions and, yeah. and, and that kind of thing and just that must be very very difficult and you know that's a yeah. very thing to well it's training and I think that's that's the thing isn't it it's it's the it's the element the thing that we don't understand I talked to somebody recently about um sensory burnout and they'd never mm. heard of it and actually most mm. people have never heard of sensory burnout because we always think of burnout as I'm burning the candle too long I'm working too many hours I'm not getting enough rest and stuff which is true sensory burnout really indicates the overloading of the senses so sensory burnout could be being in a very noisy environment where the noise sound levels are really high and it's really difficult to manage through, which is why you might not necessarily have done a, a full day's work, but you could walk mm. out of there exhausted, exhausted yeah. because your sensory receptors have been absolutely smashed to pieces, you know, and, and that is something that we need to establish better understanding of. You know, there's yeah. reasons why people go home and collapse in a heap on the floor. And I don't mean that, you know, because that is happening. But that's often <laughs> yeah, yeah. not, that's often caused by so many things. 
I think that is such an interesting, interesting one, because I think if you took that the other way and perhaps there was an open, uh, open and transparent culture, and like you said, people shouldn't be ashamed to talk about uh, neurodiversity or mental health. I mean, I think, I think it applies to both. Um, and, you know, if you took that scenario and actually then somebody is able to talk to their manager and, and say, look, th this is this is what's happening. This is why. Um, these are the things that are, are, are difficult. Um, and then working together um, to to come up with a way of reducing those sensory uh, sensory overload. Um, yep. So then ultimately, you know, for the for the business or the the school or, or whatever, you know, you've got then a member of staff who is not going home and absolutely yep. collapsing and is and is unwell from it. Yes. Um, yep. But you've got then a more healthy uh, member of staff who's going to be more productive. Um, whatever those accommodations are, you know, there's not going to have that much of an impact compared to a member of staff being signed off off ill. But also then looking at that bigger picture with them working towards a society and, and, a, and a business world and, that accommodates people's needs without the need for, for shame and stigma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, a really big, <laughs> really big topic, isn't it? But that's very it interesting. Um, but, you know, I think and I think what's been really interesting to talk about today is that these the neurodiversity and these and these difficulties perhaps and the the impact on mental health um can apply to to young people to pupils to students but also to adults um families parents and 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 employees and employers so uh, we've, yes. <laughs> we've covered quite a lot to be honest Matt I knew we would hasn't it um so yeah just as we've got our final few minutes really is there yeah. anything um that you would you know what kind of take takeaway messages would you yeah. like like people think, to, to listen to I think it wraps into everything you've just sort of shared to be honest with you Marie. I think the reality right now is we need to embrace this as a positive conversation i want mm. people to feel comfortable talking about both mental health and neurodiversity i want people mm -hmm. to be open and honest and able to share that because the only way we can really change the future is by having the ability to talk about what's really going on and and that's something that obviously is a concern right now especially around service support accessing you know uh, diagnosis and, and additional support yeah. But one thing that we can all do, and this is an encouragement for every single person, one thing we can all do is, is learn a little bit more about ourselves. We can take mm. our own ownership of that. And that's something that I try to empower people to do through training that I deliver with, with Simpler is, is to really help them to understand, you know what, firstly, learn about yourself. Take care of yourself first. There is a prioritization issue. If you ask people to prioritize things in their life, they will probably put themselves quite low down that list. And that's got to change. We need to learn about it. If you're struggling with anything, and this is sort of a reaching in through this, this means, this, this media, if anybody out there is struggling with things in their mind, in the way that they feel about their lives, in the way that they're experiencing struggles themselves, try to find a safe space to talk about it. And that is yeah. important because I a lot agree. of people sit yeah. there holding those thoughts and doing nothing with it. And I know mm. it's difficult sometimes when you're feeling low and vulnerable, worried, concerned, anxious to reach in, but know yeah. there are many people out there who can, who can help and support. And, you know, you mentioned yeah. it very much at the beginning. I haven't spoken about it through this session. You know, I've been a Samaritan now for, for eight years, over eight years now. And, and, and Samaritans is a great organization for people who might just need some safe space to talk. So, so always know yeah. Samaritans is out there. 
the telephone number is 116123. It's free to call. It's confidential. You'll just get a friendly voice like mine, if you like my voice, of course, um, <laughs> at the end of the phone, just to talk to and just to say what you need to say and maybe talk for yeah. the first time about those challenges. So, so takeaways for me are everybody takes their own personal responsibility for understanding themselves. Self-care is critical. We all need to learn the, the importance of taking care of ourselves. And if you need help, if you need support, if you're worried about something going on in your life or you're worried about maybe I've got a mental illness or mental or, or neurodiversity there, reach out, talk to somebody, please do. I hope those things help. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Today's been um, a fantastic show, I think. And thank you for being my very first guest. Um, yeah. But yeah, those takeaways at the end, totally agree, totally support that. Um, it is about... Um, I, you know, opening up to people and accessing support and, you know, be the change. We we all want things to change um, and we've yeah. got to be part of that. So, yeah, thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much to listeners as well. It's been really nice to see that people are engaging and listening um, and, and I appreciate the messages. And, yeah, really look forward to being here again in a fortnight's time. But um, thank you, Matt, and have a great rest of the day oh no worries it's been an absolute pleasure well done for your first one as well really appreciate it and um yeah that's uh yeah good luck with the rest of them right <laughs> thank you all right thanks matt You'll be great. Brilliant. No Take care. this is teachers talk radio and you are listening live